Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Fiction, science fiction, horror, fantasy. Crime. LGBT Thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. FM Riverside and 1050 AM Palm Springs. Now joining us, Greg Lawson. Uh, Thank you very much for taking some time to uh, talk with us tonight. You're welcome. I enjoy it. Oh, good. Now, um, um, from from my uh, little bit of research and and that, uh, uh, you're quite the... uh, research specialist and uh you've done a lot on uh roswell and um so i thought you know maybe to start things out maybe you tell us a little bit about uh yourself um and then we can get into the events of uh 1947 so um who is greg lawson yeah who is that's a good question um a 51 year old man uh i uh i spent uh Ten years in the military, I have uh, a condition called AFADD. It's called Armed Forces Attention Deficit Disorder. I did four years Army, four years Navy, and two years uh, Air Force. I never made it over to the Marine Corps. Um, I, I was kind of done after the tenth year there. Uh, but in the Army, I was an infantry parachutist. In the Navy, I was an operations specialist on Nimitz. And in the Air Force, I was a security forces uh, person. And... Uh, uh, in between those stints in the military, um, I've, I've spent a little over 23 years as a law enforcement officer in Central Texas as a deputy sheriff, a patrol officer, um, SWAT guy, uh, underwater recovery team guy, and uh, um, detective for child abuse, uh, sex crimes, and uh, so homicide detective. Wow. And uh, I, I became uh, interested in... Uh, the paranormal realm, I guess, when my uh, wife's uh, best friend moved to Roswell and we started going up there visiting her about 13, 12, 13 years ago. 
And uh, since then, um, I've kind of branched from uh, Roswell into some of the other paranormal realms, uh, mainly specializing in processes of investigation. So uh, I don't necessarily go off into the dark with my equipment and, uh, and try to hunt ghosts or anything like that, but I do uh, help people who do that uh, with their processes and their evaluations of the uh, evidence that they bring back. So that's what I do. Wow. Well, that sounds pretty interesting. Now, so you've you've always been involved in sort of the, uh, I, I want to say, helping people in the way, uh, I mean, uh, being in the military and then into the uh, police and, and homicide and stuff. Was there something that drove you there? Like, were you from a military family or a policing family, or was it just something that you had an urge to do? Yeah, I, I think it was just an urge. I, I remember when I was a kid, um, you know, I, I couldn't, I couldn't very well stay still. I was always pretty busy, um, and I was a, a average student. And in sixth grade, we had to go pick out a book, and we had to read the book and do a book report. And I had never read an entire book, um, and I went and picked uh, several books, and all of the books were something like The Search for Atlantis. Or, you know, the Mayan Inca ruins or, you know, whatever. And so I've always been interested in mysteries, I guess. Um, as far as my military service, I was just, I wanted to jump out of airplanes and, and go to other countries and see the world and, uh, and have somebody pay for it. So <laughs> that worked out well. Um, so yeah, I, I got about, I got a little over 50 countries, uh, between the, the three branches. So I got to travel quite a bit and, and had a really good time doing it. So I, people say, thank you for your service. I say, thank you for paying for it, you know, because I, I got to, I got to do some good traveling. Yeah. Well, no, but that's great. That's good. It's good to hear. Uh, I, I, uh, I see and hear so much in the media because I'm part of it about the ups and downs and bads and goods about policing and stuff like that. And uh, I, I I try not to jump on the thank you for your service, but I, I certainly do the old, um, I really appreciate uh, police and, and military and uh, that they change their lives and uh, do this to keep our country the way it is. You know, um, so... You know, I certainly really appreciate it, and uh, well, I, I, you know, I have a lot of respect for people that put their whole lives to it because you you've really dedicated. I mean, you're 51 now, so you've dedicated really your life for this kind of service. Pretty much my whole adult life, except for about two years. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, th and there's a lot of great people in the military. There's a lot of great people in law enforcement, and we have some bad people too. Yeah. Just like we have some bad priests and some bad dentists and some bad, you know, yeah. uh, you know, veterinarians, we yeah. we have that percentage of the people that fall through the cracks and then we make, you know, they do something. You know, if a cop lies, all cops lie. Right. That's the way people kind of perceive it. So, yeah. um, but but you know, especially for cops, cops understand this. Um, it, it's it's like the sheepdog, the sheep's. They don't like it. The sheep don't like us. I just said sheep. The, yeah. the sheep don't, don't necessarily care for us, right. and the wolves don't care for us. Yeah. And we understand that, and that's just the way it is. And we know that what our purpose is, uh, and we're going to get 
you know, uh, blackballed sometime. We're going to get treated bad sometime. Uh, but we understand that's part of the job. And, and you, uh, if you get knocked down, you get back up, dust off and, and try yeah. to go make the best decision you can. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the positive way you can look at it. And the, I just, uh, um, I, I just wished as a society we had grown up a little bit more than that and would realize that, uh, you know, yeah, there's good and there's there's bad in every industry. Just because we have a bad dentist, they're not all bad. Same as same as cops or anything. I just I'm just more into the support of of people and doing what they can right and doing it well. So you know, right. that's all. But uh, <laughs> enough about that. <laughs> but anyway, thank you for all the work you've done. And and uh, so now you get into. Uh, so you start visiting Roswell, and uh, was there something in particular about Roswell that m- made you kind of go, ah, I'd like to know more about this? A- absolutely. You know, um, the uh, Stanton Freeman um, kind of posed the question in 1978. Uh, he did an interview with Jesse Marcel, who was the uh, individual that was a- actually sent out uh, in the field to do whatever uh, the identification or the recovery uh, of some material that uh, was found on a ranch out there. And so, um, you know, I was kind of interested in that. And, uh, and so I, I started looking into it more and more and uh, read a couple of books on it and thought, wow, you know, um, this is about the, one of the biggest cover-ups I've seen. Uh, and the thing about it is, is, you got to remember, I mean, this happened in 1947. Right. So Stanton Freeman poses the question in 1978. Well, that's <laughs> 31 years later. That is a cold case. Yeah. <laughs> and when you're looking at something like Roswell, well, Roswell was Roswell Army Airfield. So it, it was right in the middle, a little bit past the middle, of the transition of the Army Air Corps turning into the United States Air Force. So... I don't know if you've ever been through any kind of a transition within a large organization, but it's typically pretty much chaos, and nobody really knows what anybody else is doing, uh, and people are, are struggling over power and authority, and, and you know they're trying to figure out how this new United States Air Force is going to operate. So um, they have a uh, you know uh, uh, what would be considered by the citizens around there a major incident. And how are they going to handle that? So and there's a lot of things that led up to the actual report uh, of the downed craft. But, um, yeah, it was very confusing, I'm sure, for them at the time. And this is just as confusing, or not, if not more, in 1978, 31 years later. Right, right. That's when it started to have growing interest then. Well, what were what were the um, what were the parts that led up to it? Actually, was there that, that you're talking well, about? Well, yeah, I mean, there there's always been um, lights in the sky. You know, uh, right. the whole ancient alien theory and 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 uh, um, anything you look back in history. You know, the human beings are looking to the skies for answers, and so you know, there, there's a lot of people out there at night watching what's going on, and there's little you know, reports of uh, what people would consider an, a spacecraft or some sort of aircraft uh, 
doing certain things. And certainly in World War II, a lot of pilots uh, reported seeing different things. And, and I'm sure you've talked about and know about uh, Foo Fighters oh, yeah. that uh, a lot of the, the pilots would see. And uh, basically a lot of them would, would talk about, you know, these glowing orbs that would come up and fly around their, their aircraft and then speed off. And uh, so that was in the back of people's minds when all this is going on. And um, depending on what version of Mac Brazel's um, statements you follow, because there's, there's a couple of different ones and they, they're contrary to one another, um, is when it all started about. But in, a, in, a, in June of uh, uh, June 25th, about uh, 1947, a pilot named Kenneth Arnold was up there um, in uh, the Washington area, and uh, he was flying uh, south, and he reported some flying discs that he saw, and he estimated their uh, their speed, uh, you know, over a thousand miles an hour, and there were several of them. So this hit the uh, hit the newspapers. Um, and you know, he's, he's shown in a couple of different interviews, he's got a picture of, uh, some of the drawings of what he thought he saw. And, and so that was about June 25th. Well, Matt Brazel, um, for, for those who don't know, he, he's a rancher out. He was a rancher out in New Mexico. Um, and in one of his versions, uh, June 14th in, in 1947, um, get that that date based on he said about three weeks ago on July 8th. So there's a couple of different statements where there's some like I said there's there's some date disparities there. But I mean think about it. it's 1947. Um, I'm sure he didn't have being a rancher uh, and riding a horse. I'm sure he didn't have a calendar in his back pocket. Right. So I'm not sure how he kept track of dates, but. Anyway, um, he says that he's out checking on some fences. He's out uh, riding some part of the property, and he finds a very large uh, debris field. And this debris field, um, you know, causes concern to him. And uh, shiny material, lots of uh, lots of different pieces. And uh, anywhere, depending on what version you you hear, a hundred yards long to three hundred yards long, and this wide. So that's a pretty large debris field. Um, and if you go with the first um, statements of, you know, it was around June 14th or so, um, it's amazing that he didn't come forward sooner if he had a spacecraft crashed on his ranch. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. Um, if, if that was the case, I would think that he would come forward sooner. But he actually waits till July 7th. Um, he, like I said, just depending on who you read, I'm getting most of this out of the, actually the, the Roswell newspaper um, as far as the timelines go because they didn't keep a lot of uh, records of what happened back then. And so you can always fall back on the newspaper if it was newsworthy. So on July 4th, he says that he returns to that area and gathers up the debris. Um, some accounts say it was his family with him and depends on, like I said, who you, 
who you're listening to, but bottom line, he's out there, he finds this debris, he collects it up, and when he goes into town on July 7th, he goes straight to the sheriff. There's a guy named George Wilcox. And uh, George, um, you know, decides, well, this is probably military. We need to turn this information over to um, the Roswell Army Airfield. So that's what they end up doing. And uh, that's where in July 8th, 1947, the Roswell Daily Record um, throws the headlines of RAAF, uh, Roswell Army Airfield, captures flying saucer in Roswell region. Now, it's interesting if you look back, um, the Kenneth Arnold report out of Washington State from uh, June 25th of that same year, just a, you know, a few days earlier, he reported flying discs. And uh, the actual newspapers changed the wording to flying saucers. And so that's the first place that we actually see them using the word flying saucers. So that's interesting on how, you know, the evolution of a story flows and, uh, and certain things get said later that weren't said in what I call an alpha report. What is the first person who has seen or reported something? That's, that's the report that we need to go to uh, that's really, really important to follow. So from June 14th, uh, the debris, to July 7th, he talks to George Wilcox uh, to July 8th. The Roswell Daily Record puts out the, they found a flying saucer. Um, interesting thing is, is the very next day, Roswell Army Airfield does a re- retraction. Um, General Ramey says, no, that's not it. It's a balloon, and the story gets buried. That was July 9th, 1947. You don't see anything much of much of anything after that until 1978 when Stan Freeman um, reviews this this uh, information uh, through the newspaper and then contacts Jesse Marcel and uh, and does that interview. So, uh, I would think, but uh, you know, uh, I don't know. I mean, you're 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 the um, um, detective here, but. Um, one thing is, yeah, you, you were saying that. Why would he have this um, landed or crashed um, air aircraft of some sort, flying saucer, and not do any anything about it for a while? Well, and uh, and he um, actually changes his story uh, after that, and he says when they they re-interview him. Uh, they they put out a um, um, another smaller story. It says rancher regrets reporting the the, the aircraft, um, and he uh, he then says that it was on July fourth that he found it and he collected it up. And you know he's so far out there in the country that you know he had some things to take care of and he brought it in on July seventh. Um, but. You know, depending on whose version of the Roswell incident you really put credence in, um, you know, uh, Randall and and, uh, and Schmidt did a, a book, UFO Crash at Roswell, and Don Schmidt 
and Tom Carey, and Kevin Randall, um, really did the meat and potatoes of this stuff. I mean, you know, Stanton Freeman came forward and, and got this thing going, but but Randall, uh, Schmidt, and Carey really stuck to it and kept interviewing people and kept interviewing people. And so, you know, the, the, the UFO crash at Roswell, day after Roswell, I mean, not the day after Roswell, the, uh, the truth about the crash at Roswell, um, those are, are some of my, uh, some of the, the, the best books that I've read as far as uh, the in-depth research. I would have never interviewed 300 people on anything if yeah. I wouldn't have done it. Um, in in a uh, in the kind of cases that I work, um, one of the number one things that we have to fall back on is case management. Right. And case management, uh, you know, you have to look at everything and say what's important and what's not. Now, the things that aren't important doesn't necessarily mean you're not going to get to them. We're just not going to do them first. So, out of the 300 people that you would interview, I'm uh, pretty sure you could probably put the case to bed with. Uh, you know, 10 or less good witnesses. Uh, you might need another 20 to support some of the things that they said, but 30 witnesses, that's a lot. Yeah. So, you know, Randall and, and Schmidt and, and Carrie, I mean, they interviewed hundreds of people uh, about this. And, uh, and that's, that's where the, you know, some of the um, debunkers and, and, and Roswell haters, uh, you know, called the Roswellian syndrome, is everybody wanted to jump on the bandwagon and, oh, they're writing a book. Yeah, I saw something. You yeah. know, and they come running up and want to want to be a part of it. Yeah. So. And and that's great. But when you get back to the, um, so when you, why did he change his story? Uh, when someone changes their story initially, um, it's usually because you're trying to hide something or you're, you know, are trying to get something, or you're trying to please someone, right? Like you're you're aiming your story to make them like what you're saying, or what? Was, right. What was so? What did you ever figure? Kind of what the option of of why he would have originally, why he changed his story? Period. Like at at this point, you know, so many years after, it would be pure speculation on my part. Of course, um, yeah. There are some theories behind it. Um. I tend to go with the first story told. Okay. So if his first story says, uh, I don't know, about three weeks prior to July 8th, you know, so it's July 8th and he's speaking. He says, yeah, about three weeks ago, I saw this material. Right. I had some stuff to do. I had to take care of this. And then I went back over there and I collected it up day before yesterday. Uh, and I thought I'd bring some of it into town and show you. And, you know, whatever happens, happens. So I... I tend to stick with the alpha report. I stick with the first thing that, that, that comes forward um, and try to work from there. And as you're asking, you know, why would he change his story later? Well, the, the researchers, the, the, the guys that are really the real Roswell researchers, um, they dug off into this and they believe that uh, the Roswell Army Airfield, uh, the Counterintelligence Corps, um, the intel people at Roswell, and you know the Roswell chain of command pressured him into changing his story so that they could hide the timeline. 
and uh, depending on what the timeline was, whether they're actually trying to hide a UFO that crashed out there or whether they were trying to hide uh, the fact that a secret project crashed out there because uh, no matter what anybody thinks of this situation, that happened. Yeah. Something crashed out there. There's, there's, there's not, that's not anything that's in doubt. Uh, what's in doubt is, was it an extraterrestrial craft that traveled through time and space, uh, you know, thousands of light years in order to get struck by lightning over New Mexico and crash in the desert? That seems a little, you know, if you can make it that far without, you know, yeah. Uh, damaging yourself and you're going to get struck by lightning on earth. That's not a good story. No. And, and there, there's hypothesis about, yeah, was, there was a lightning storm and the spacecraft got struck by lightning and it crashed. Well, that's man, they need, yeah. <laughs> they, they need, they need some uh, serious work on their airframes because, uh, you know, we have uh, aircraft all the time that get struck by lightning. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, well, maybe not all the time, but it, you know, that, <laughs> It, it doesn't down the aircraft right there. So. Hey, thanks. I'm flying tomorrow. So. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. Yeah. How's the weather? Yeah. You don't have a lot of lightning in, out there. That's good. But, yeah. Well, that's. But yeah. So um, when you're looking at that, and that's completely plausible. You know, you're a rancher. Um, you're hurting animals all day long you're you just want to make a living you want to go to church you want to go have dinner uh you want to have family mm -hmm. and then you have these military people saying hey uh, this is at the end of world war ii so everybody's thinking a little bit differently you know there's a lot of patriotism a lot of nationalism at that point right so they're they're everybody wants to do their part for the war effort so you know you got a guy like uh you know, a, a colonel from uh, the Air Force or a general from the Air Force or officers from the Air Force telling you, look, this is really important to national security. I need you to say this. I need you to say that you found it yesterday. We went out there. We got it. It's just a weather balloon. Everything's fine. Let's move forward. And rightfully so, a good farmer would do that. He'd go, yep, I'm going to do that for my country because it's the right thing to do. Yeah. So... If you have people that, that are pressuring them to change their stories, and you know, how, um, how did the name get changed to Saucer then? Flying Saucer, like what was that from? Well, there were reported as flying discs uh, yeah. originally from, like I said, Kevin Arnold, um, and just through the media, uh, they just changed the noun from disc to saucer because it's kind of the same thing. Yeah, the same thing. Um, kind of and, but it was a it was a newspaper reporter that did that. Uh, no, nobody that saw a, a flying saucer report a flying saucer. Kevin Arnold reported flying discs, right. and then the, the newspaper reporter turned around. And I don't know whether uh, I can't remember how they were sharing, uh, you know, the articles between. I don't know if it's teletype back then or how they were doing it. But anyway, um, so they got it, and uh, and they just stuck a new title on. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's a good one. Yeah. I like flying saucer. Well, I mean, I, I just, I just hope that he got some sort of credit and royalties. <laughs> <laughs> they should have. Yeah, they should have looked it up. I should look that up and figure out who did that. Who the, was the first one that coined it? The but. amount of time it's been used by now, God, they. Oh yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah. 
you know. Uh, but that was a big deal when it happened. What didn't didn't like uh, they 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 make it seem that way on the TV and news reports that uh, you know all the cops and all, the whole town all came out for the crash. Now, yeah, now that see that's not, all just fake, true. right? You see, that's not that never sure. happened. They just they just done that for a movie, right? Right. Um, yeah, it, you know, there there was only a hand people of a uh, handful of people that were directly involved in it. You know, um, you got Mac Brazel, the rancher. Right. Uh, you got Floyd and uh, Loretta Proctor. They were the owner of the Proctor Ranch. Uh, they're the ones that told Mac he should go report it. You got George Wilcox, who's a sheriff of uh, Chavez County, um, and Wilcox. They when they end up reporting to Roswell Army Airfield, um, I don't know the the actual chain, but Jesse Marcel, the, this information landed in Major Jesse Marcel's lap, and he was the intelligence officer for the uh, Roswell Army Airfield, and uh, you don't tell a, a major that's a head of intelligence for your your airfield, hey, go out in the field and figure out what this is, unless you think it's something special. You know, um, if it's a weather balloon, they're going to send uh, an enlisted person or a non-commissioned officer out there to, to collect up the stuff. They're not going to send the in- intel officer out there. And they're certainly not going to send the intelligence officer out there with two guys from the counterintelligence corps. And for those people who don't know what the counterintelligence corps is, they're the military people that lie to everybody to throw you off track. They're the counterintelligence. You got intelligence, you're trying to gather information, counterintelligence, guess what you're doing? You're disseminating bad information. So um, when you have (laughs) the intelligence officer, then you got uh, Captain uh, um, Sheridan uh, Cabot, and uh, and uh, a sergeant with him, a Sergeant uh, Rickett, who was the NCOIC, he's a non-commissioned officer in charge of the counterintelligence corps. They all jump, depending on what version you listen to, they jump in cars and they head head out there. And um, Mac Braswell goes to show them the site. Um, some some accounts of it is the counterintelligence guys actually drove trucks out there, or at least a truck out there to collect up debris. Like I said, there's no reports on any of this. They didn't, you know, people say, well, we got to find, you know, uh, the reports of what happened. Well, back then, you got to remember, we're switching from the Army to the Air Force. Um, they were used to aircraft crashing. you got a bulldozer out there, pushed it out of the way, got brooms, swept it off, and kept landing aircraft. It was wartime. They didn't have big manuals to go, okay, you know, what is the skid ratio and the coefficient of friction when this aircraft hit the ground the way they do now to determine how airframes, um, you know, respond to impact and what the G rates are. They didn't have that stuff. Yeah. So they weren't, you know, if they were working off anything, they were working out of a big chief tablet and a Crayola or something, you know, <laughs> just writing down possibly what, uh, you know, radio frequency they're operating off of and, and you know. Uh, what their latitude and longitude was. So um, it, it it's really suspicious that they would send this group of people out in order to collect that in, information or collect the, the debris also. 
and that's something that that you can fall back and go, well, you know, maybe, um, maybe something else happened. Maybe uh, Stanton Freeman's idea of that wasn't actually the crash site. Maybe the spaceship was traveling so fast that this is just an area where it hit the ground and skipped off the ground, just like a pebble on a stream, right? right. If throwing pebbles on a stream, they can kind of skip across there. Well, that area out there isn't as flat as, as glass, but uh, if an aircraft came in at a really super high rate of speed, something that probably faster than anything that we can even imagine, and it would hit there, that would tend to make you believe maybe it would strip some of the outer skin of the uh, structure off, uh, leave that behind, and the actual you know, craft crashed in a different location. So it would be a great plan to go, all right, let's send our intel, intel guys out there and our counterintelligence guys out there. Uh, have them take a look at that debris field and do that, and that's going to be the official response that we have for this incident. And in secret, let's get a bunch of trucks out and go to another location close to Corona uh, and actually recover the, the spacecraft and do that. So there's, there's that theory that that's what happened. Um, and, and, and Stanton Freeman and some others uh, prescribed to that theory. And um, at, at least the, the, the crash of Corona idea. Right. So um, it, it leaves a lot of questions. So, so now after it happened and then the years went by, what brought the huge interest all of a sudden in the late 70s? Uh, to finding out this, like I, I understand, like Stanton Friedman, like, but what was there some sort of thing that all of a sudden made it catch on? Like, why would it just start? Well, I, I think when when you have an intelligence officer that admits that he lied uh, in official records when he was, uh, you know, there, and that would be Jesse Marcel saying, "Yeah, I lied about that." Uh, I was told to lie about that, and um, that's not what happened. This is what happened. So, you know, that perks a lot of people's interest because it was, you know, it was it was essentially a not a debunk, but it was it was uh, you know buried. Um, and you look at a lot of these different types of um, um, types of stories when they, you know, the story comes out crash at Roswell, and then they bury it the next day. No, there wasn't a crash. It was just a weather balloon. Right. And then it's buried, and it stays buried, and then people start talking a little bit about it. Hey, remember back then? It's a crash at Roswell. And then you have MUFON people, and you have some other people that are really watching what's going on as far as how the government is responding to UFO sightings. And we had tons of sightings. Um, I know when I was a kid, 1970, I remember seeing these glowing objects. They looked like stars way up in the sky, and they were moving across the sky. Well, I lived near um, Bergstrom Air Force Base in Austin, and Bergstrom was the SAC base command. Uh, and, of course, they were launching uh, weather balloons all the time. But it was something, you know, late in the afternoon, 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock, when you get those long... Uh, you know, sun rays coming across and those those uh, balloons would, would glow pretty well. 
And it was always neat watching those things. So it turns into a, uh, a mystery. It turns into a myth. And uh, more and more people start talking about it. And, and if an intelligent officer comes forward and says that he lied and that they covered this up, that's a big deal. Um, it, uh, it damages the credibility of our government, just, just like, you know, um, like I said before, when a cop lies, all cops are liars. Well, uh, somebody does something wrong in the government, now the, all of the government is evil. All the government is bad. Um, some of the biggest things that really came out of that was uh, around, that was actually about 10 years after Jesse Marcel's interview with Stan Freeman, um, Glenn Dennis, uh, there was a, there was a, uh, um, a show, uh, Unsolved Mysteries, mm-hmm. and, uh, and they put out a show about UFOs, about Roswell, and Glenn Dennis uh, calls Unsolved Mysteries and says, you know, I saw aliens and I did this and I did that. Uh, actually, he, he didn't see, he actually saw them, but he was working at a, uh, um, at, at a mortuary. He said he was working at a mortuary at a time, and he was, and he said that he received a call uh, from the Roswell Army Airfield asking for caskets. Uh, needed some child-sized caskets, uh, and um, they were asking him some pretty unusual um, questions about that. Um, that was in uh, 1989. Uh, Glenn Dennis uh, uh, said that that happened in, back in '47. Um, interesting enough, uh, within five years, Glenn Dennis opened the uh, museum in Roswell for the, the UFO museum. So that kind of damages his credibility a little bit when when that happens, when he waits that long. Um, so there's a lot of different investigations that went into, you know, researching Glenn Dennis's uh, credibility. And, uh, you know, um, so he he was at the Ballard Funeral Home for sure. Um, and uh, uh, a lot of the stuff that, uh, that he talked about was actually impeached by, uh, by Schmidt and Kerry and others. Um, he, uh, he changed uh, some of his story. He had, he had said that he was. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do 
not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I was friends with a nurse uh, at the Roswell Army Airfield Hospital. And, uh, and that she had said uh, that she experienced a... Um, um, involvement with uh, the aliens that they brought in from the crash. Uh, and he changed her, her name twice. Um, and, uh, so that, you know, you know, when you, you start covering up your trail, uh, that can corroborate your evidence or your testimony. That's a big red flag. Right. Um, and then, you know, if you, if you call into, a hotline while you're watching, uh, uh, you know, Unsolved Mysteries in 1989, and then in 1991, you're one of the founders of the International UFO Museum and Research Center, and <laughs> well, that causes some problems and makes people wonder what's going on. You know? Well, yeah, I mean, that's like a, that's really a good promotional tool, you know. Uh, so now of the, of the books, you know, when the original when they had like. A, you know, uh, were um, um, taking all these witness accounts, having like 300 of them. Um, what, did they have problems really getting 300 good witness accounts? I mean, isn't that really tough to do? Absolutely. And I, I want to say, you know, Don Schmidt is probably, I bet he's done over 500. Um, he's a machine. Him and Tom Carey are just machines. That's If they're not... Um, you know, taking care of family or doing something directly to make money, they're doing Roswell research. Uh, those guys are machines. And um, they've done a great job. And, but, um, you know, like I said, if you, if you go around and if, if I walk up to some people and I say, hey, <clears throat> uh, I'm a well-known writer, uh, and I'm doing a research on this particular incident, and you describe the incident, um, and I'm looking for people that I can interview that I'm going to put in my book. Do you know anything about it? 
And <laughs> there's a lot of people that will just step right into that role. Oh, yeah, I sure do. My grandfather was there. He told me all about it. You know, he had this piece of material that uh, that uh, he was afraid that the government was going to come get. So he buried it in the back part of our property, and I've never been able to find it or stories along those lines. Right. So that that's where that, that thing is where, you know, um, you can watch uh, TV shows and cop shows, and you can kind of see what you think a cop uh, does and how he behaves and the way he interviews people. Uh, or, you know, you can go to some of the uh, uh, very in-depth interview schools. And some of, some of the most basic interview schools, of course, are going to be in your basic law enforcement course. Um, and depending on what state you're in, is going to be whether it's four hours or 24 hours uh, total time that you're going to spend studying on how to do who, what, when, where, and, you know, why, possibly. And, uh, and then, you know, there's other schools outside. The Department of Justice does a lot of uh, interview schools. And then you have private companies like uh, the, the Reed Technique. Uh, and you can, you know... Reed has uh, your basic interview, your intermediate interview, your advanced interview. Your, you know, I mean, they have all kinds of schools, and most of those schools are about forty hours apiece. So um, there are a lot of things that you have to look for, and I, I'm not saying you have to interrogate somebody who is ex- is an experiencer of a paranormal event. Mm-hmm. What I'm saying is, is it's really good to have that background, so when you're talking to somebody. Uh, and they start throwing up signs of deception that you're able to pick that up. Now, when they're doing that, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're lying about the incident. They could be lying about something surrounding the incident that they don't want someone else to know. So I hear cops all the time, oh, I knew he was lying. I, yeah, I could tell a liar from a mile away. No, you can't. Mm. Um, and and you can't do it with a uh, polygraph machine either. Polygraph machine is a tool for interviewing. Um, just because you're getting indications on a polygraph that the individual is lying about a question, as I said before, it doesn't mean that he's lying about that specific question. He could be lying to cover up his knowledge because he doesn't want his wife to know he was at that location at the time. Right. So he could be lying about something other than what you're trying to, the information that you're trying to get from him. Um, and it makes him look like he's being deceptive on the question that you're answering, which is not necessarily true. So deception, dishonesty, they could be tricking you just for fun. Think about the, you know, people that are just uh, hoaxing just, just for fun. Yeah, yeah. Um, or they're trying to perform some sort of fraud, you know, cheating you out of something. Or, like you said before, what is their motivation? You know, maybe they're getting something out of this. Uh, recognition by being in a book or um, credibility for opening a business or whatever. So yeah, when I said, well, I, just in the reading, it was over three hundred plus individuals, but only forty-one of them were considered genuine first or second-hand witnesses. Right. So I mean, even then, um, and you as a uh, officer, I mean, how many times? Have you heard different stories from witnesses that were just really not true for whatever reason? Uh, Once a week, yeah. at least. So, <laughs> yeah. so yeah, and and that's not even picking out um, saying that 
they were just bad people or liars or whatever. It just happens. People make mistakes. And when sometimes they're emotionally excited or whatever the reason, um, they don't always report accurate events. Absolutely, you know, and, and, and people are prone to exaggeration, overstatement, embellishment, amplification, all kinds of different, uh, you know, enhancements of their story. Um, and, and we are a creative people. We're a creative creature. And uh, our brains try to make sense of uh, the things that we see that's a mystery. We try to fill things in automatically, things that we see. You know, you can just play that. You can go online and just... Uh, you know, play those visual games all day long, uh, and our brain will fill in straight lines and circles and all kinds of other things that are not there. But because it recognizes a pattern in one part, it'll automatically fill that pattern in. And then you have, you know, all kinds of subconscious thought. You have uh, a lot of things in your midbrain, in your amygdalas that are triggering um, facial recognition, and your brain is constantly trying to put things together. Um, and so the interesting thing about your brain is your brain is much better at forgetting things than it is memory, memorizing things. Yeah. So, you know, when, when you're retelling a story, you're building that story as you go along and you're filling in a lot of the gaps that you might not have really, um, paid attention to. It's interesting also the interviewer, it's how you ask the question a lot of times is how, uh, uh, how embellished or how amplified the statement is. And, and I'll give you an example of, um, I can take somebody who has witnessed a, uh, a collision between two cars and I can say, um, about how fast were the cars going? Or uh, I can say about what speed were the cars going when they touched each other? And they'll say, ah, 30 miles an hour. And then if I said, how fast were the cars going when they ran into each other? Eh, maybe 32, 35 miles an hour. How fast were they going when they smashed into each other? About 40, 45 miles an hour. How fast were they going when they careened into each other and came apart? And, yeah. Oh, probably <laughs> 70. You know? Yeah. It's, it, it's... It, it depends on how. And, and there's a lot of people out there that go, oh, that's not true. Well, it is. Oh, uh, you yeah. just need to do some reading on on uh, some uh, some peer-reviewed studies on interview techniques. Oh, yeah. And uh, it absolutely matters. So everything oh, yeah. that the interviewer says will influence what the interviewee tells you. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, it has a huge influence. Uh, uh, so do you consider any of the evidence... Um, lead to really some proof of such a crash? As I said, there was a crash out there. <laughs> there was a crash. <laughs> um, you but, know... I, well, I'm but, just like, you know, the, the the weather balloon thing, it really kind of... Um, it really kind of hurt it when the government came out a while back there. Remember and they said it was a weather balloon and they wanted to, uh, you know... It doesn't help the image, right? It, right. It, it makes and, them and look it, like they're lying. And Sure, uh, and they were lying. Yeah. And they're, they're, they've continued to be deceptive. Um, but um, 
It was not a weather balloon. We know that, and the government has said it's, it was not a weather balloon. Um, it, you know, the government's final story is it was a mogul balloon, which was um, part of a uh, reconnaissance kind of a surveillance uh, program that we were running at the time because we wanted to listen to the Russians and figure out whether the Russians are exploding nuclear weapons or not. So um, over at Alamogordo, they, they had a lot of uh, graduate students. They still have graduate students and, and PhD students and stuff going through there. And they do their experiments and they do whatever it is that they're working on. And uh, uh, New York University had a balloon project going on over there. And so there was all these graduate students that were putting together these balloon trains and putting this equipment on these trains and putting radar reflectors on them uh, and launching them into, the, you know, as high as they could possibly go. And and uh, and they had ways to control a, a, a constant level. And so they were experimenting with a lot of that. And so that would be the most plausible uh, explanation for this is, you know, General Ramey, uh, he's in charge of keeping stuff quiet. And, um, yeah, it, it would make sense that if they were running a top secret, uh, you know, constant level flight balloon program, and uh, these kids from uh, New York University were part of that it would make sense to make up some plaus- some sort of story to get them off track. Now, saying that it was a flying saucer doesn't make too much sense to me because that would attract more attention than diverting attention. Yeah. Wouldn't you think? Yeah. Yeah. So, so doing the flying saucer thing was really bizarre. Um, now, this is my own hypothesis because I've I've worked around a, a, a lot of top brass people I've done a lot of briefings with uh, with top brass people and um, I can see where um, a top brass person would be um, uh, frustrated with what's going on and I can see him turn around and going I don't care what you say get it buried get it done I don't want to hear this anymore and so that individual goes around and goes, hey, it was a flying saucer. No problem here. And then he, the top brass person goes, whoa, wait a second. What are you talking about? It's not a flying saucer. Tell them it's a weather balloon. Okay. And so they go back, and I could see that happening. Now, other people um, that have investigated this stuff would say, oh, my God, that would never happen. The 508, you know, bomb group, that would never happen. These were the most squared away people we had in the military. They were the only ones that were delivering the atomic bomb. That would not have happened. Well, I've been around uh, a lot of, uh, of upper echelon military people, and, and I'm telling you, things like this do happen. Um, but that would make a plausible part of that. The rest of it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense the way that they did the whole cover-up. Um, it it uh, it doesn't flow well. Let's put yeah. it that way. Yeah, yeah. So if you're going to bury something, why wouldn't you say it's a weather balloon to begin with? 
instead of coming out. It's a flying solid. Don't you know everybody is going to come want to come look at it? Yeah. Why would you say that? That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, mistakes happen. <laughs> well, they, they do. And you know, Walter Hot was the uh, the the public information officer, and he's the one that did the press re- release. Um, and uh, you know, he would not have done a press release without writing it up and handing it uh, to someone. Uh, I would say at least. Uh, you know, Colonel Blanchard, who was the uh, commander of the Roswell Army Airfield at the time, um, he would have, uh, I would think, at bare minimum, have seen that before it went out, unless he just, you know, gave it to maybe, uh, I don't know, um, some other officer that, that might have been in charge. Maybe maybe uh, Blanchard didn't want to have anything to do with it, or, you know, uh, he regulated it to his second-in-command. Um, but I mean, obviously once it went out, they immediately recanted that and pulled it back. Uh, and you know, the interesting thing is, is Walter Hott, you know, he, he was, he was a young guy at the time. He had been in World War II and stuff, but he, he was a young guy. And, uh, later in life, um, he actually comes forward and does a couple of, uh, affidavits, mm-hmm. uh, some, uh, sworn statements that, um, he actually saw part of the aircraft and he saw an alien. Right. And uh, one of those affidavits was a sealed affidavit. He said he didn't want open until after he died. Um, so the, there's, you know, you could throw that in there uh, with the mix. Um, you know, so you, you, you're looking at deathbed confessions of, uh, of guys, and you would think, okay, well, what would the motivation be for doing this um, at this time? You know, it, is he trying to clear his his conscience, or is he trying to, uh, you know, become famous for his kids or his grandkids? Uh, you know, what would the motivation be? Or maybe maybe he's uh, sat around all those years and thought about it. Um, hmm. Yeah, and I just and some of the comments on 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 his uh, deathbed, you know, like uh, it's it's. They kind of slam it, saying that the document was never written by uh, by Hot, and right. uh, and uh, I and also at his age, and uh, he was having some uh, some cognitive issues. Right. So uh, you could throw all that in there. There, that's a, that's the problem. I, I worked a uh, I worked a murder case one time, and uh, uh, the individuals that committed the murder uh, both got you know, close to 100 years in jail. Uh, and to this day, uh, you know, I was in charge of the case. To this day, I don't know why they did this. Uh, and the main reason is because they lied to me so much that I don't know what to believe anymore. And that's what that's what happens when you read this case. If you're, you know, if you're, if you're being objective about this whole investigation, um, at what point do you go, well, I don't know what's real and what's not because the government continues to lie to us um, all throughout this. You know, when they, when uh, Stanton stepped in and, and, you know, really started doing open records requests and, and really uh, kind of trying to flesh out this stuff, um, you know, they had Project Sign going, uh, they had Project Grudge going, they had Project Blue Book going. Um, and then, you know, they come out with uh, Project Mogul and, 
it's like, okay, well, which, which, what's what? Mm. Um, and, and of course, we, we don't want to get off into this, but then you got the Majestic 12 documents. And then that, that throws a whole bunch of other conspiracy in there as far as, you know, high-ranking members of this Majestic 12 that know about aliens and, uh, you know, the balloon was a cover story and, and some other documents that were found in the National Archives um, that weren't cataloged the way the National Archives would catalog them. And they were found by two guys that were doing UFO research, so that would be really handy to mm -hmm. to go in the National Archives, bring this stuff with you, <laughs> and go, look what I found! Yeah. You know? <laughs> And that would be great, you know. Yeah. And, and uh, so, you know, there's just so there's so much there's so many red flags of deception in this thing. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's, yeah. it's hard to. Yeah, it'd be really tough to find um, an actual truth because one thing leads to another, and you don't. You yeah, it's just uh, confusing. Uh, what right. about the what about the like you know? Did you get off on the Area Fifty One type thing and? get into any of the research in that or um I, i've read about i've read about area 51 i've been there um took some pictures there you know i was a tourist there right um area 51 and that's one of those things where um that's a top secret military base and we need to respect that right, uh, right. and whatever the heck they're doing over there keep doing it yeah. because we need to stay on the, on the cutting edge of of uh you know our defense and, uh, and, um, I, I applaud them for whatever they're doing. You know, there, there's the theory that, you know, the, the craft at Roswell, uh, possibly went to area 51. And there's, um, some guys that have worked over there that said that they saw it. Uh, I, you know, I, uh, I don't find their, the little bit that I've read on them very credible. Um, you know, the, there's a lot of different ideas as far as where the aircraft could have gone to. Yeah. And, um, and so, um, I, no, I don't, I don't yeah. know enough about area 51 other than, like I said, I've been there taking some pictures and, uh, went to the little alien. Are you familiar with that? No, actually. No. Yeah. It's a, it's a little, uh, it's a little, like a little restaurant that's oh. there and it's called the little alien. Oh, <laughs> little, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so uh, that's 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 my experience there. So I can't say that I'm the expert on that for sure. Yeah, no, no. It's just when we had uh, Annie Jacobson, you know, the uh, journalist, and and that. She, yeah, she wrote that uh, Area 51, you know, the uncensored, and has that um, memorandum that's uh, from the FBI, and it's uh, claiming of three. Uh, so-called flying saucers and stuff, and of course she 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 has simulate her her basic theory is that it's uh you know it was germans uh you know that it was uh, uh recruited from the war you know um she is a uh, a fantastic um reporter yeah um her book is a lot bigger than any of my books so i can't really yeah. say no she's got just... she's got some major publishers behind her yeah um, but yeah that's um well, just it's just some There's of the idea. There's a lot of controversy yeah. in that book. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Just some of the idea that uh, um, it could be something like that, and and if 
they're dealing with flying saucers and so, you know just yeah again it's so so endless do you do you ever think there will be a resolution to this you know i don't know um i um I, I don't know. Uh, you know, the the only thing that they could do at this point is bring some of the material forward. Um, you know, Jesse Marcel, uh, intelligence officer, essentially says he goes to the site, recovers material, brings it back. They put him on an aircraft. They fly into Carswell Air Force Base. General Ramey has a meeting with him. He says he goes in, he shows General Ramey the material, they look at it. He steps out of the, the office, uh, goes to another location, comes back, and General Ramey has replaced all that material with the balloon material. And that's where the photographs come from. Um, that was basically Jesse's last, um, last statement of what happened. And so why Jesse Marcel would come forward after a good career in the Air Force um, and change his story back to the UFO story, I, I don't see a lot of motivation for that, um, other than if he wanted to, to look like a crazy man in a, you know, Roswell movie. Yeah. Um, I don't see what, what he would have gotten out of that. And that's the other interesting thing about this whole deal. Um, if I was a general, let's say, um, I don't know, um, Clements McMullen was a, a deputy head of SAC at the time, the Strategic Air Command. He's over at the Pentagon. Um, now, everything I've read about McMullen is he was a micromanager. He was into everything. He controlled everything. Um, if, if something like this happened in Roswell, uh, and they came out with a UFO crash and that's not what it was, and they had to retract it and everything, I would think McMullen would have lost his mind. What in the hell are you people doing out there? Um, I would think that, uh, a Colonel William Blanchard, who's in charge of the, the Roswell Army Airfield, uh, you know, if he orchestrated this ridiculous debacle, instead of just saying right in the front, hey, there's a weather balloon, shut up, everybody go back to work. Um, and, and, you know, and that goes to, to General Roger Rainey, also, eighth, you know, command of 8th Air Force um, over in Fort Worth. I, I, I'm a reasonable guy. I would have for sure replaced William Blanchard and put him on a desk somewhere, and he probably would have never had another promotion. But William Blanchard's career was impeccable. He ended up being one of the Joint Chiefs. That's, he's at the top. He's talking to the president, you know, years after this happens. Hmm. How does a guy who runs this ridiculous debacle – no, it's a it's a flying saucer. Oh wait, no, it's a balloon. I <laughs> that guy replaced. Yeah. But they didn't. No. They didn't. Those William Blanchard was the man. He you know, the joint chiefs. He's you don't get much higher than that in the military. 
So that's um, that, that's kind of not saying. <laughs> that's kind of making it look like a cover up. Oh, it is absolutely, and there's no doubt. I mean, you know, uh, Colonel Debose. You can go on to uh, uh, YouTube and just type in uh, Colonel Thomas Debose, and uh, and there's YouTube things. He's sitting right there. He goes, "It was a cover story. It was a lie. We were hiding, hiding, hiding everything." Um, this cover story for the Mogul Project for that, but you know, who are you going to believe? Yeah. It, it doesn't make any sense that you would say that it was a flying saucer or a flying disc, depending, you know, yeah. on what they actually told them at the time. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, you look at things like that and it just throws, you know, you think about one thing and then you go, yeah, but you look at these complex systems of how all this communication works. You think, well, that damaged the story here and this supports the story and then that damages the story and another thing supports it. And it's, uh, it's pretty crazy. And it's like I said, when we started off our conversation, this is one of the best cover-ups and most, most investigated cover-ups ever in the history of our country. Yeah. Well, it's just amazing. Just amazing. I, and, and the efforts that people go to like, um, you know, like taking, I, I was reading about that, uh, Taking the original telegram and reanalyzing it, and uh, uh, because of... oh, and that the, the, uh, on the picture with Roger Ramey is sitting there, and he's got the, the paper yeah. in his hand. Yeah, yeah. Like, boy, but that's like you know they've they've really gone to a lot of effort. Absolutely, uh, just um, like you like you said, um, you know, three. Let's say let's say you got three hundred uh, uh, interviews, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, the things that you have to have to consider when I'm doing case management, I have to look at quality over quantity. You know, uh, does the fact that 300 people say they saw a flying saucer make a flying saucer exist? Or does one guy with a wheel of a flying saucer prove that the flying saucer exists. I'll take the wheel. I'm going to take the physical evidence over um, human malleable memory anytime. Mm. And there's a lot of people that will argue about this. My, I was going to get my degree in psychology until I realized I don't want to hear your problems. <laughs> and that, kind of, that kind of ruined my whole idea. Of, of, I thought, well, I could do you know, maybe uh, industrial psychology or something. Nah, I'm not going to do it. No. I did all the classes except for... Um, statistical analysis for behavioral sciences, and I switched. Um, but the main thing is, is the people that study memory will tell you memories change. And you'll have people argue and say, well, wait, how come when I remember 2 plus 2 equals 4, that 10 years later I don't remember 2 plus 2 equals 4? I mean, I, I, I do. How come it doesn't change? And that's a little bit different. When you're talking about rote memory, that's a little bit different than experiential memory. Mm -hmm. um, your brain's kind of fractured up into a lot of different things. People say, well, some people are left brain thinking, some people are right brain thinking. Um, and, you know, if you're creative, you get, you know, this side of your brain working and if your memory, that's not necessarily true. You know, there's a lot of studies out there that show that, you know, when you're doing art, both sides of your hemispheres are active. And when you're doing math, the same thing. And, and so 
your memory is based on little protein bridges, and it, it, it builds these little protein bridges as you memorize whatever it is. So if it's rote memory or experiential memory or um, any of those two mixed, um, you're still going to have to build these little proteins to remember it. And over time, those proteins will degrade, and that's why you forget a lot of the the things that you know you've done if you're not exercising those memories if you're not thinking about them a lot they'll go away and then somebody will go hey you remember that time we did this you know and then somebody gives you just a couple of hints and then you go oh yeah and you kind of build that memory back well that memory will be malleable a little bit there'll, there'll be a little differenti- differentiations and and uh you know and, and as you get older I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but you go, yeah, you know, I was over there about 10 years ago. And you go, no, that was 25 years ago. <laughs> yeah, you know, that time compression thing. Wow. Starts, my mom's 93 years old, and she goes, oh, you know, a couple of years ago we were there. I was like, no, Mom, that was 1963. Yeah. You know, and uh, and so you have to look at that sort of thing. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, yeah. 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 Oh, I've noticed it as I get older how the time just isn't the same it just and how people look and how people things are you know (laughs) you can look at someone and think oh yeah are are they at a high school yet and they're like in college like you just your whole perception has changed as you've lived longer and uh absolutely And, and my mom she she told me something one day, and I just looked at her like she was this incredible philosopher. I couldn't believe she brought it up. She goes, yeah, you know, the, the, the years get shorter and shorter and shorter. Every year it's just getting, you know, goes by quicker and quicker. I was like, no, it doesn't, Mom. And she goes, yes, it does. I said, no, years are three or six, five days. And it just, she goes, no, Greg, when you're five years old, going to six years old, that is so long. Do you remember how long that was? You couldn't wait till you were six years old. Yeah. That's because it was one sixth of your life. It was a huge portion of your life. Yeah. When you're 90 years old, that year is one ninetieth mm-hmm. of your life. Yeah. It's much faster. Yeah. She goes, just wait. It's not pleasant. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I have noticed. <laughs> yeah. So going crazy. You know, those are the things that we have to deal with, and and. And, you know, and then you have that, that whole syndrome of you have the incident, then you have the debunking of the incident, you have the submergence of the incident, you have the, you know, mythologizing of the incident, and uh, then it reemerges and everybody's interested in it. All of a sudden, everybody wants to be an expert in it, and, you know, the media gets on it, everybody's on it, and all of a sudden, you know, you have your 500 interviews into this incident, and like you said, maybe 40 of them are actual uh, first-hand knowledge, mm. you know? Yeah. So it, it gets very, very diffused. Yeah. And I think, unfortunately, as time goes by, um, there's less and so much less of a chance of, a, of us really finding out what happened. Uh, uh, you know, and plus, the, you're right, the media and the movies sort of... Uh, give people their history even though they're not accurate <laughs> absolutely they do you bet because you know most most of the people out there are not studying history no. you know and if they see it uh, you know a movie 
um, Noah's Ark. Well, that movie that just came out, did you go, oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> I, that was, uh, yeah, that was crazy. I didn't realize, you know, like Lord of the Rings meets the Bible. Yeah. It was crazy. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. That's just, uh, it, yeah. There's so much, uh, so much to be sold in a movie that, you know, uh, right. it's tough. Yep. Well, I'll tell you, this has been a interesting conversation. I really love talking to you. It's been good. Um, well, I appreciate you having me on. Oh, just fantastic. Um, now if someone has some information, or wants to contact you to let you know what really happened, how would they do that? <laughs> uh, they could they could contact me on my website. It's www.authorgreglawson.com. And author is in writing books. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and I have a contact page there. I also have some uh, other pages on uh, places that I might be speaking. And... Uh, and some stories and, and some other projects that I'm working on. I'm working on some projects here in Central Texas on uh, some Indian sites. That's uh, fairly interesting. So some pioneer sites. Oh, yeah. It would, probably would be. Yeah. Certainly a lot of uh, good history out there to find and to, you know, uh, focus on. I'll tell you. It was, it was pretty crazy. You know, um, I, I grew up, I pretty much grew up in Austin, and I didn't really think about Austin as being a... Uh, a frontier, uh, you know, a place where, um, you know, pioneers and Indians killed themselves on a regular basis, kept, killed each other, I should say, on a regular basis. And uh, I didn't think about, you know, the amount of, uh, of debauchery that was going on in Austin when it was a young fledgling town uh, on the frontier. But it was pretty wild down here, and, uh, and especially being the, the, the capital uh, of the state of Texas, um, you would think that it'd be a little bit different, but I think that actually added <laughs> to yeah. the problems. Imagine that. Yeah. Well, sir, thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Thank you. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.